Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 2.15, The Campaign of 1675. Last time, we spent our time discussing the outbreak of King Philip's War. We detailed the causes in the slow march to war. Once the war kicked off, we talked about the English decision-making process and looked at how the entire event quickly began to snowball into a full-size conflict. This week, we are going to pick up basically where we left off. I had told you all way back in the very first episode of this podcast that my interest never really was in military history, and this wouldn't be a podcast where we discuss troop formations ad nauseum. However, it obviously is important to discuss key battles of major conflicts so that we can understand the political decisions as they are made. Therefore, what I plan to do is split up this over the next two episodes. Today, we are going to cover the major battles of 1675, and then next time we are going to move through the campaign of 1676. After that, we will have a few episodes on the peace agreement and the ultimate legacy of King Philip's War. Last time when we left off, we had seen little more than small engagements between the English and the Indians. Following the attack on Swansea, the English struggled to contain the situation. And for the English, at this point, containment is their number one priority. The colonists were still holding out hope for a peaceful outcome. And to aid in achieving that outcome, they were sending out diplomatic missions with the goal of keeping the other tribes out of the war. Unfortunately for the English, instead of dealing with the tribes in a diplomatic manner, they walked into the party, making threats and alienating everybody. Furthermore, rather than pushing any advantages that they might have had, we are going to see time and time again how the English back off from the advantageous position instead of pressing that very advantage. We of course saw this trend begin last week, and it explains how Philip was able to get himself out of the clutches of the colonists in July of 1675. As we discussed, it wasn't as though Philip was that popular of a guy either. The Wampanoag tribe were not on the best terms with the other New England tribes, and many of them would have been more than okay seeing Philip get run over. However, Philip had one real advantage here. As much as the other tribes were not in love with him, they had also become concerned with unchecked English expansion. For a lot of tribes, therefore, when they had to choose who they were going to fight for, it was often with reluctance that they sided with Philip. By and large, that first month of hostilities had gone distinctively in favor of Philip. His tribes had made substantial gains, and the English always seemed to be several steps behind. The quick and often daring skirmishes and raids by the Indians ensured that they were in control of the war, whereas the colonists were just trying to get their footing. Even into August of 1675, officials were still working hard at securing alliances, a task that was not going great for them. Following their trip to ensure Narragansett neutrality, a task that did produce a almost completely meaningless agreement, Edward Hutchinson was set off to attempt to enter into an alliance with the Nipmuc people. However, this negotiation didn't get off to a great start either. Upon arrival at the village of the Nipmuc people, Hutchinson was dismayed to find that the village was completely abandoned. This ominous start must have, at the very least, come as a concerning turn of events for the colonists. Not wanting to take the hint, however, Hutchinson decided to send Ephraim Curtis and about 25 men out to find out where the Nipmuc were making camp and attempt to establish contact. Curtis did accomplish this feat and found the tribe relatively quickly, 
The good news for Curtis is that they did not kill him outright, and they did agree to a meeting on August 2nd. However, Curtis, much like Hutchinson, completely missed the pure anger and vitriol coming from these tribes. Meeting near the modern-day village of Braintree, Massachusetts, the Nipmuc quickly established the fact that they were not terribly interested in sitting down and having a conversation. Instead, the Nipmuc were going to vent their anger and make sure that the English understood exactly how angry and upset they were. The airing of grievances came in the style of a sudden ambush on the Englishmen coming to negotiate. In what has become known as Wheeler's Surprise, named after the Captain Thomas Wheeler who had accompanied Hutchinson and Curtis on the trip, the English were suddenly attacked. The Indians were organized, efficient, and brutal. Quickly, eight Englishmen lie dead. Hutchinson and Wheeler were able to escape with a now largely disorganized army. Both wounded in the attack, Hutchinson and Wheeler fell back to Brookfield, where they attempted to wait out the storm. The Indians continued their attack and over the course of the next two days, torched much of the village and held the English down until reinforcements could arrive to break the siege. Wheeler's surprise would become an important point in the overall war against Philip. For the English, they once again had made some astoundingly baffling decisions in their execution of the war. Between the abandoned village that Hutchinson came upon and the open hostilities displayed towards Curtis, they decided that it was all still good and just went ahead with a meeting. They ignored the clear warning signs that the situation presented. Looking at the event with hindsight, Wheeler's surprise is not that surprising because who would have guessed an ambush might be coming? Rather, the surprise lies at the fact that the colonists somehow walked themselves willingly into a bloodbath, ignoring all the potential warning signs along the way. For Captain Hutchinson personally, this marks the end of his time in our story. A few weeks after the attack, Hutchinson would die from his wounds. Much as his mother had some 30 plus years before during Kaif's War, Hutchinson had now been killed in an Indian attack. For Philip, the attack was a huge success. Beyond the obvious victory over his enemy, Wheeler's surprise did a lot to help get the other tribes off the fence and join his cause instead. The attack proved that the Indians could fight the English troops and win major victories. Philip would be quick to act upon his victory and two weeks later would lead another attack in Lancaster, Massachusetts. Again, deploying his sudden ambush-style mode of attack, the tribes managed to kill seven colonists and burn a few structures in Lancaster. These ambush-style hit-and-run tactics of Philip would become a staple of the war for him. Philip understood that the English had an advantage in manpower and weaponry. If forced to fight in an actual pitched battle in an open field, that was not going to go well for Philip or his men. In that situation, the English held virtually every single advantage, and logically the outcome for Philip was going to be a whole lot of death and destruction. Philip, therefore, was in a position where he was going to need to conduct a war that largely avoided these kinds of engagements. Philip had other advantages as well. He had a vastly superior knowledge of the land. The English, despite having been in New England for some 50 years, had never really fully adapted to fighting in the woods. The men under Philip, therefore, always had a point where they could fall back and have the set an advantage. 
Entering into the woods for the English put them in danger of being ambushed, a position that they obviously wanted to avoid. With his knowledge of the land and knowing that he had little hope in large-scale engagements, the strategy for Philip was quick hit-and-run tactics. The Indians would strike at a town, kill a few English, burn a couple farms, and generally terrorize the people for a few days. When the English reinforcements would appear ready to engage the Indian threat, the natives simply slipped back into the woods and out of grasp of the colonists. As a result of this, what we see emerge during much of the war are attacks just like what we saw in Lancaster. It was a quick attack that left a handful of English dead, a few structures burnt, and not much more. As these hit-and-run attacks continued throughout the summer of 1675, we come to one of the stranger stories of the entire war, and indeed one of the stranger stories in the entire history of the United States. Among the ambush-style attacks going on during that summer was one that may have hit the town of Hadley, Massachusetts on September 1st, 1675. The town of Hadley was relatively well defended and therefore became something of a base of command in the region. Now, a moment ago, you may have noticed that I said that there may have been an attack on Hadley on September 1st, 1675. This was not a mistake on my part, and to this very day, there is debate about whether or not there actually was an attack on the town on that day. We do know that the town would be attacked in June of 1676. However, there is far more debate about the attack in 1675. All of this is going to lead to what has become known as Hadley's legend. Okay, so what is the legend? The entire story revolves around William Goff. Goff had a long and distinguished career back in England, where he fought on the part of Parliament during the English Civil Wars. Goff, also a successful politician, was very involved and indeed a driving force to bring Charles I to justice. Goff was one of 59 people that personally signed the death warrant that would see Charles I beheaded. Now, as you can guess, when the Restoration came in 1660, Goff was not exactly going to be a popular guy amongst the new regime. So, where is a Puritan who signed off on the death warrant of Charles I going to go? Well, that's right, New England. After coming to New England in 1660, Goff would live in hiding for the next decade, doing his best to avoid the government agents after him. Per the legend, on September 1st, 1675, while the townspeople were at church, alarm bells began to sound. It was then that an old man suddenly appeared, a man that none of them had seen before, and a man that was dressed differently from them. The old man immediately took charge and led a Puritan force in Hadley personally. Led by this mysterious old man, the Puritans managed to repulse the Indian forces and prevail. Immediately after this great victory, the townspeople turned to their hero, this old unknown man, who had led them through the battle into victory. However, just as soon as he had appeared, the old man was suddenly gone. The most famous telling of this story comes from Increase Mather. We have not yet met Mather, and I'm not actually going to formally introduce him just yet. Mather is going to be a major part of our story down the road, as he's going to be a major player in the events to come in New England. Mather, as well as his son Cotton, would later become frequent correspondents of Benjamin Franklin. However, for now, just know that Increase Mather was instrumental in spreading this legend. The story that spread is that the town of Hadley had been saved by an angel sent by God, hence the legend of the Angel of Hadley. 
The old man, the angel sent to save them, was clearly William Goff. Over the next 150 years, the story was retold time and time again, and each time the attack got a bit more serious and threatening, and Goff became that much more of a hero. Historians are still debating if the attack ever actually took place. In the decades following the attack, the popular belief amongst historians was that yes, the attack did take place, but the legend of an angel was a cover-up to protect William Goff. Well, certainly there were those who knew Goff was in the colony, it was not totally public knowledge. Therefore, when Goff came to the defense of the colony, those who knew his true identity were forced to invent the legend in order to protect him from discovery by the English officials. This also explains how an otherwise unknown figure can just walk out and lead an army to victory. Goff was a soldier and had seen battle before during the English Civil Wars. Beginning in 1874, in an evaluation done by the historian George Sheldon, it exposed that the attack of September 1st probably did not take place at all. Sheldon focused on the stories themselves and how much of the tale is not produced from the diaries of the men that were actually there, specifically the diary of Goff, but rather through stories told by longtime families of Hadley, specifically the Leverett family. Today, most, though importantly not all, historians agree with the conclusions of Sheldon that the attack on September 1st never actually took place. Rather, the attack is a bit of storytelling about God's providence on the people of Hadley. Angels in Hadley aside, by the middle part of September, King Philip's War had expanded throughout the entirety of New England. Following continuing attacks throughout September, the New England Confederation declared war officially on September 9th. The New England Confederation, if you'll recall, was the Confederation of New England Colonies that was formed for the common defense and trade. The last time that we really saw the New England Confederation do much of anything was back during the Pequot War. Since then, however, it has largely been quiet. That is due in part to the unpopularity of the idea in the Massachusetts colony. Massachusetts was the giant of New England and was not exactly excited about having to share their power with their less powerful neighbors. However, by the middle part of September 1675, the war had become such a threat to the entire region that it was again necessary to form a united front. Before going on, I want to touch on a couple of roster changes to the New England Confederation from the last time we saw them. Rhode Island is still not a member, because, you know, the other colonies thought that they were crazy. Likewise, the New Haven colony, which admittedly we haven't talked about much but was a thing, was no longer a member in 1675. The New Haven colony had been one of the founding members of the New England Confederation. However, in 1664, the New Haven colony merged with Connecticut. Just after the declaration of war from the New England Confederation, the largest engagement thus far took place. Deerfield, Massachusetts is located in the northern portion of the colony, some 35 miles north of modern Springfield. The initial attack on Deerfield came on September 12th and was really nothing remarkable in terms of what we have already seen. A small band of Indians raided the town, burned a few houses, stole some food, and then got out of Dodge before the English could respond. In this way, the attack on Deerfield was nothing new. It followed in line with what we have seen previously throughout the colony. Deerfield was a somewhat valuable target for the Indians, as the town produced a good amount of food. The decision was therefore made to just abandon the town entirely and move to the now secure Hadley. The task of running the evacuation fell to Thomas Lanthrop. On September 18th, Lanthrope, along with 79 colonists, abandoned Deerfield. 
The walk was uneventful initially, however it was slow. Not only were the people in the group not exactly the fastest movers, but they were also bringing along their personal belongings, which meant for a long baggage train following them. A few miles into the march, Lathrop stopped to allow everybody to rest. Now here is one of those interesting historical questions. Lathrop obviously knew that there was danger nearby. After all, he was evacuating Deerfield because it had been attacked just the week before. It's not like he was under any belief that he was now out for a Sunday stroll. However, Lathrop himself seemed oddly unaware, or at very least unconcerned, that he was walking around in hostile territory during the middle of a war. Lathrop didn't bother doing the things that should have been basic in the situation. There is little evidence that he had any scouting missions trying to figure out the location of the enemy. Rather, it seems like he just didn't bother with it at all. If you are sitting there and thinking to yourself that this sounds like a bad decision by Lanthrop, well, yes, you would be correct. The attack came while passing along a narrow road flanked on both sides by a forest. Lanthrop himself presumably had just enough time to realize his mistake before he was killed. The attack, by all accounts, was swift and brutal, and within a short time, at least 57 of the original 79 were dead. Samuel Mosley was nearby along with his troops and was able to rush over to provide relief, but not before the damage was done. As a quick aside, should you ever be traveling through South Deerfield, you can go visit the monument to the Ming killed as well as see the mass grave where they were all, including Lathrop, buried. To this day, the small brook that runs through the town is known as Bloody Brook because the story was that the brook ran red with the blood following the ambush. That is how this battle would become known as the Battle of Bloody Brook. The Battle of Bloody Brook was the largest such engagement in the war to that point. While we know that the English had right around 80 men, not including those under Mosley, the Indians appeared to have had several hundred. Depending on what I read, I've seen the number jump around between six and 900. Either way, the English were badly outnumbered, and it showed that the Indians were not afraid of the occasional pitched battle. Though this was still an ambush, the people on the walk were as surprised as anybody, the Indians did engage with Mosley for the remainder of the day. The bigger problem as well is that the victory for the Indians in Deerfield gave them a straight shot down to Springfield. Well, not a huge village by any means, several hundred lived in Springfield and its location was strategically important. To this point in the war, the tribe located closest to Springfield, the Agawam, had remained neutral. However, this was a tenuous relationship. Nobody in the town trusted that the Agawam were actually neutral. More likely, it was one of those situations where they had already chosen their side and not the side that the English wanted and it was just better practice to remain officially neutral until the moment it wasn't. Following the ambush at Bloody Brook, Springfield's leader, John Pynchon, realized that the town was likely in danger. Pynchon decided that the best move was to assemble a force, head out, and launch an aggressive attack on the Indian settlement, thus eliminating the threat. And Pynchon did just that. On October 4th, he and a large group of soldiers left Springfield to join in on an offensive against the Indians up in the areas around Hadley and South Deerfield. 
Remember, however, that several times now I have mentioned that the colonists were seriously terrible at executing this war. Well, we are about to see a pretty big example of that. In fact, I'm guessing that I've got a few listeners out there right now who have already figured out exactly what is about to happen. With the English gone, the neutral, but probably not so neutral, Agawam found themselves looking at Springfield without anything resembling a defense. Seriously, for the Agawam, they would just stroll into Springfield and absolutely nobody was going to be able to do anything about it. Likewise, the decidedly not neutral Agawam had actually been sheltering quite a few warriors who had been causing all the havoc to the north. So, just to make clear, John Pynchon has effectively gone off to fight the Indians to protect Springfield. And in doing so, he has left the town that he's off to defend, completely defenseless. Not a great moment for Mr. John Pynchon. As I mentioned a moment ago, the Agawam were likely waiting for the perfect moment to, loudly, declare that they were not actually neutral. The moment came the day after Pynchon and his men had left the town. On October 5th, the townspeople had been tipped off that an ambush might be coming. The townspeople went to fortified locations, while the town's constable, as well as a local lieutenant, rode out to talk with the Agawam and make sure that all this talk about an ambush was just a big misunderstanding. The men never returned. Soon enough, the small garrison left to protect the town was under attack. The garrison was greatly outnumbered and did little to even slow the advancing assault. With all the townspeople now held up in a couple fortified locations, there was absolutely nobody around to stop the Agawam from burning the town. John Pynchon would learn of the attack, quickly swing a U-turn and race back to Springfield. Pynchon did make good time returning, however by this point much of the town had been destroyed and three lay dead. Only a handful of the houses survived the attack. The destruction of Springfield as well as the Battle of Bloody Brook are part of the narrative of incompetence that really helps define King Philip's war. Time and time again, we see the colonists putting themselves into a position where they were vulnerable to attack. The English would score a victory at the Battle of Hatfield on October 20th. Hatfield is located in between Deerfield and Springfield, near modern-day Amherst. It was here that we see Samuel Mosley running things following the attacks throughout the region over the past month. In this situation, Mosley, upon figuring out that an attack may be imminent, spent his time fortifying the town. Despite some minor losses, the town managed to successfully defend itself from the attacks, giving the colonists a much-needed victory. We are going to wrap up today with what was the biggest engagement of the war, the Great Swamp Fight against the Narragansett. This battle is probably the most well-known of the war and would lead to heavy losses on both sides. Last time we visited the Narragansett people, we had just seen them agree to remain neutral, though it doesn't really appear that anybody took too much stock in that treaty. The Narragansett certainly did not seem terribly interested in the English demands for hostages. Rhode Island by this point has already become a theater in the war. However, despite some fighting, it was not seeing the same devastation as further north in Massachusetts or over in the west in Connecticut. This was partly due to the fact that the Narragansett dominated the region, 
and at least to this point, had remained neutral in the Greater War. As we discussed last time, the colonists were very quick to realize just how powerful the Narragansett were, and just how important it was to keep them out of the war. Unfortunately, as is the theme with King Philip's War, the English decided to secure peace with the most baffling terms possible. Instead of trying diplomacy, the English under Edward Hutchinson came in and demanded that the Narragansett turn over hostages. Despite the fact that Hutchinson would leave with a treaty in hand, it is virtually impossible to call Hutchinson's attempt at forging peace as anything but a complete failure. Neither side really appeared to think that a lasting peace had been reached. Rather, they had just kicked their can down the road a bit. Either way, the Narragansett likely had zero interest in complying with colonial demands, and most likely the heavy-handed negotiations by Hutchinson had pushed the Narragansett towards joining Philip rather than ensure either an alliance or neutrality. Part of the problem, however, is that the treaty had a clear expiration date. As part of the agreement, the Narragansett had agreed in writing to turn over any members of the Wampanoag tribe. This was not a popular provision amongst the Narragansett, as it is a clear attack on the sovereignty of that tribe. However, likely wanting to buy for time and avoid immediate conflict with the colonists, the easier solution was to agree to terms and figure out what to do later. However, by the end of October, time had run out and the Narragansett were expected to deliver. The Narragansett did make a weak attempt to say that, yeah, we're gonna do it, but uh, we're busy right now. Yet nobody really seemed to be confused by the reality that the Narragansett probably had no intention of ever complying with the agreement. It likewise came as a surprise to basically nobody, when the answer for the failure of the Narragansett to deliver was an army being marched towards Rhode Island. One would also assume that the Narragansett were well aware of the consequences of not producing the Wampanoag, and likely themselves understood that war was now imminent. The Narragansett were one of the, if not the, most powerful tribe in all of New England. The English, therefore, were not going to walk in there unprepared. Because of this, we see in an entire month pass between the failure of the Narragansett to produce the hostages and the beginning of hostilities. However, by the time early December rolled around, colonial forces were pouring into the area. What the colonists do not appear to have realized is they were hanging out right outside a large Narragansett fort, often known as Kenneshet's Fort, after the Narragansett Chief, which the entire battle would center around. Josiah Winslow himself would lead troops into Rhode Island. Along the way to Rhode Island, Winslow would lead several raids himself against bands of Narragansetts, as well as any Indian he happened to come upon. The Great Swamp Fight, as it will become known, is also going to become a moment when all of our favorite players from earlier come back together. As I mentioned just a moment ago, Josiah Winslow was there. However, Benjamin Church and Samuel Mosley are also going to take place in the battle. To this point, there is little evidence to suggest that the colonists realized that the Narragansett even had a fort nearby. However, that is soon going to change as one of the Indian guides, still working with the English, led them directly to the fort. Fighting began on December 15, 1675. The opening salvo came when the Narragansett approached the English to sue for peace. While negotiations were going on, the Narragansett attacked some nine miles downriver killing a dozen or so colonial troops. 
The biggest part of the battle, however, would come on December 19th. On the morning of the 19th, English troops made their move and marched into the woods to engage. It was a cold day and the men were slowed by snow. However, by noon that day, the English and Narragansett would meet. After some time exchanging fire, the colonists discovered to their advantage that the winter weather was actually a boon rather than a burden. As you have probably picked up from the name, the battle is taking place in a swamp. Normally, the swamp would have provided the Narragansett an extra layer of defense as it became impassable. However, by the time we reached late December, the swamp was frozen solid and provided an open shot at the fort. Well, the fort was in pretty good shape, there was still a single spot where it had not yet been completed. The English found the gap in the fort, possibly with the help of their Indian guide. It was here, as the English attempted to breach the fort, that the most fierce and bloody fighting of King Philip's War would take place. By all accounts, the fighting here was intense and brutal. Despite a hard day worth of fighting, however, the Narragansett were always sitting at a disadvantage. Well, storming a fortified location isn't necessarily always going to be a great battle plan. In this instance, it would work for the colonists. After hours of a raging gun battle, the Narragansett ran out of gunpowder. The colonists were easily able to keep up supplies, and therefore their goal was simply to outlast the Narragansett. While exact numbers are hard to come by, the defeat of the Narragansett in the Great Swamp Fight would see at least 200 of their men die. Though I will mention that exact numbers should be taken with a grain of salt as they are all over the board here. Following the battle, the English would set fire to many of the Narragansett's stretchers, likely destroying their winter food supply. English losses are likewise hard to accurately ascertain, however it typically is thought to be around 70 to 100 dead, with twice that number wounded. While the English would celebrate their victory in the Great Swamp Fight as a major victory, the reality is that the biggest thing that it accomplished was ensuring that the Narragansett were going to war with the colonists, and were now going to be seeking vengeance while doing it. Do not confuse this for an attack like at Mystic River during the Pequot War. The Great Swamp Fight was devastating, yes, but it was not enough to knock the Narragansett out of the war. The campaigns of 1675 were a mess for the English. The first six months of the war was filled with incompetent leadership and baffling decisions in the field. The colonists had managed to create many of the problems that they were now fighting against. However, as we are going to see next time, ultimately the English are going to be an impossible force for the Indians to defeat. They closed 1675 on something of a high note with their win in the Great Swamp Fight, and they were more than happy to ride on that through the winter of 1675 and into the springtime campaigns of 1676. Next time, we are going to come back and pick up right where we left off as we jump into the campaigns of 1676. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, that you are staying healthy, and that you are staying safe. I will see you back here next time so we can look at the campaigns of 1676 and the conclusion of King Philip's War.